Welcome to What's Your Beef? Each week, we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef? In this episode, I'm chatting to Julie McDonald. She's the Chief Financial Officer for McDonald Holdings, or MDH, as they are often more often referred. They are one of Australia's largest integrated, family-owned and operated beef cattle enterprises. Hello, Julie. Hi, Jane. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. Now, there's a lot to get through uh, chatting to you. You've got quite an extraordinary life, including your role as a, in a, as a major player of Australia's beef industry. But I want to start at the very beginning. And um, where did you grow up? Where's home for you? And, and what first ignited your passion for the beef industry? Uh, well, I grew up um, on a hobby farm in central western New South Wales. And, um, you know, mum and dad both worked off farm, but we always had horses and a few cattle in the paddock. So um, I wouldn't I wouldn't have called us beef producers, but we had our hand in agriculture, I guess, to an extent. And I guess once you really realise that you are quite attached to it and like it, it sort of stays with you, isn't it? It's like the ear bug that never goes away. Earwig. Yeah, it, 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 really, it really is like that. I went to school and university in Sydney. But I, I knew I would go back to the bush in, in some context and, and how bush that became, I really had no concept. But, um, but I did know that I wouldn't stay in the city. So how did you get out of the city? Because, uh, you know, obviously you've ended up around Cloncurry and that's a long way from Sydney. So how, how did you get up there? Well, I, um, I studied accounting and finance at, in, in Sydney and then I, um, fresh out of uni, I applied for a job in um, a, an accounting firm in Orange and I, and I just wanted to, I guess, cut my teeth in the accounting world and have a first job and, and do that in a, a regional centre. And Orange is a fantastic place. <laughs> so, um, I always hear good I things went... about Orange. It's one of the, I feel like it's like one of those overachieving country areas. Oh, it's just really blossomed. It's got everything now. It, it wasn't quite so, I guess, cosmopolitan when, when I was <laughs> at school, but now it's just um, it's a real hub. Mm. So I'm very proud to say I come from uh, from Orange. Good. Um, but, yeah, so I went back to Orange for a few years and um, and then I went overseas with a girlfriend for six months and, and came back to Orange and then decided I'd like to see a little bit more of Australia. And a girlfriend and I decided we'd head North and uh, and she got a teaching job in Mount Isa, so I just followed her really, and and got a job in accounting firm in Mount Isa in uh, in 1997. Right, and then you've um, you've obviously worked there for a, in the accounting firm for a little while, but you fell in love with a bush boy, as sometimes you know quite often these stories go. So where did you where did you meet Xander, and how did all of that start? Well, I, uh, I arrived in Mount Isa um, in the wet season in you know, sort of, I think, February. I rolled into town in 97 and, uh, and teamed up with some great teachers um, and nurses and some really fun women. And we, uh, we went to the Cloncurry show that year. So it was only a few months later, really. And I met Zan at the Cloncurry show. Actually, I met him at the post office hotel um, <laughs> in Cloncurry, but it was the show weekend. Yeah. And I guess that's just where it began. And, and pretty quickly, I think we both knew that, you know, we'd, we'd found someone pretty special and 
I think he said to me after six weeks, I think I'll marry you. And we, we did wait a little longer than six weeks to do that. But uh, it, was, it was pretty that? quick. <laughs> well, that's yeah. a beautiful, beautiful start. Now, I guess I do want to just dwell on, um, before we go too much further, the McDonald family have had a huge history with beef cattle, starting in 1827, I think, with the first shipment of cattle to Tasmania and then moving further north to Conclaria in the 40s. So do you know much about that transition and how the McDonald family got up into that area? Yeah, so you're right. Um, the roots in agriculture do go back to 1827. Um, it was one of the um, initial um, McDonald, well, you know, the, the first Australian, um, I might just start that again. Um, so it was a Donald McDonald that came out um, on a ship to Tasmania and, and he came out as a head stockman. So that was, I guess that was where the, the agricultural roots began. And he moved north slowly, um, you know, up into South Australia. Um, he worked with sheep. He developed, uh, with a friend, developed a cure for foot rot. So they would buy six yeah. sheep, cure them. Yeah, yeah, very entrepreneurial. So yeah. that goes back a long, long way. It really family. does. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it really does. And, uh, and then he got out of sheep and the family started moving north, I guess. Um, and ended up in in North Queensland um, with Jim McDonald coming west from the Bowen district um, out to Cloncurry in the 40s, as you said. So that was the association has been, um, you know, a really long one and and full of entrepreneurs, uh, which continues today. Yeah, exactly. And we'll go we'll go further into that. So. I guess now you've come into the family business when you when you married Zander and then of course you tragically lost him in 2013 and um, that was a loss felt you know right across the industry with some of the work that he was doing and of course his um, personality and and wonderful way did did walking away from the land ever become an option at that point no no it it it, it didn't really um and I think the primary reason for that was, you know, looking at my four daughters or our four daughters and, uh, and you know, giving them the heartbreaking news and, and you know, instantly knowing that I, I couldn't take them out of this environment for one. And, um, yeah, it, it just really didn't ever occur to me that we would have any other life mm. uh, at that point. Um, you know, sure, I've felt like I've been, you know, drowning under a sea of not knowing enough and, and all of that and had my doubts, but I, I've never really seriously thought that, that our, our family business and, and the industry wasn't a great place to be for, for me and our daughters. So what were your next steps? You've made the decision that this is your life and you're going to continue and, and we'll sort of talk more about some of the work that Xander was doing, especially with animal welfare at the time, but for for yourself, what were your next steps forward? How were you going to to continue and be involved in the business to to the extent that you are now? I don't feel like at the time it was a conscious choice. I think very quickly after we lost Dan, and and as you said, it was it was a loss felt by a lot of people, um, and uh, and our our family business certainly no exception. And I think I got back from taking our eldest back to boarding school. So the children were quite young. The eldest was 13. Youngest had just turned seven. Mm -hmm. And our eldest daughter was away at at boarding school. So uh, she made a choice to go back to school, which was very brave, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. And 
Yeah, and uh, and so after coming back from that, which was really only probably two weeks after he died, mm-hmm. I got back to Devoncourt and we just had to get on with life. You know, there was gaping holes in the in our business, um, and and we all needed to to contribute. So I guess um, without sort of having a roundtable about it, everyone just picked up the things that they were good at. And uh, and I started in in Zan's office, I guess, mm-hmm. and started by um, opening his emails was actually my starting point, and it just was, I think I just opened a floodgate at that point, and uh, and just just jumped into it, and just yeah, you know, a, a huge amount of support from the industry and family, of course, but um, but a really exciting and sometimes wild ride. And uh, yeah, it just went from there, I guess, Jane. Well, yeah, and now you're an accountant by trade. So obviously you've got a, a head for numbers and you've just said opening his email was your first port of call and everyone got in and, and um, took up what they were best at. So I'm assuming that the financial side and given your current job title, that's what it evolved into. So what what came after that? How did you um, sort of keep all those balls up in the air and, and really establish yourself uh, in the business? Well, you know, I mean, I'd always had um, a fairly significant hand in in that sort of side of our business anyway. So, um, and fortunately, you know, great loyal people in our admin um, and across the company, but, you know, I'm talking about that side of things at the moment. Mm. So uh, a lot of that could just keep rolling. And I guess where I jumped in and learnt a lot, which which I I didn't have a, a huge amount of knowledge in was, more our beef trading. Um, Zan had started to box our beef in about 2009, I'm going to say, 9, 10, and, and started selling it domestically and export as well. And I didn't really have much of a handle on that. Uh, you know, I, we had small children and that was certainly my priority. So I think I, um, I delved into that side of the business because no one else really had much of, um, you know, no one else really had much involvement in that because so that Dan was ran his, it. his passion project, really. It it really was, yeah, and uh, and he just absolutely loved that side of it. So I guess it was a, an open door for me to step into, mm-hmm. and um, which I did. And you know, I really learnt an awful lot about our supply chain up and down the supply chain. And starting somewhere, I guess you just feel your way and realise, well, I don't know anything about that, so I better, you know, upskill myself. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's just you know, how it's happened. I've been very fortunate that we have got a, uh, a complete supply chain and, and I've been able to, you know, learn an awful lot from people in our business and in the wider industry. So when you're talking about the complete supply chain, there's obviously exporting beef as well, but you took on, MDH took on the Super Butcher franchise or sort of acquired quite a majority share in that. Is that how that worked? Um yeah. How did you feel? How did you feel? I'm not. I'm just. Don't know the exact details of that, so I'm just going to bush bash around there. But um, what? Um, <laughs> how did that fit in with your business model at the time? Because that's that's different again from the box beef side of things, isn't it? Yes, it it, it is. Um, so Super Butcher was acquired with a with a minority partner mm-hmm. in August 2012. So not long, really, before Zan had his accident. And and very foreign to all of us, you know, retail. Um, fortunately, um, Zan's sister, my sister-in-law Susie, stepped in and um, and resigned from her job as of chief of staff for the mining minister, mm-hmm. and and took the reins of Super Butcher. And we have 
always intended to when, when we bought it and continued to run it as arm's length from MDH. Yep. Um, so it, it had to stand on its own two feet. And we certainly um, incorporate that into our um, business, the, the umbrella, but it uh, it certainly wasn't there just as an outlet for MDH beef. Okay. Um, yeah, so it, it quite separate from MDH, but under the umbrella. So let's talk about more about the umbrella then, because I do want to ask you about Pandora Foods eventually as well. What is under the umbrella of MDH? You've, you've just named one of them. So Pandora Foods, yep. um, Super Butcher, and and MDH, the the pastoral holdings and the um, and the cattle management side. Okay, and Pandora is it's the trading company mainly involved with Brazil and China. That's the yeah, it, it's an offshoot actually. So Pindora was really born out of a need from our existing customers to access more beef that we oh. couldn't give them. Um, so I, I suppose we were fielding a lot of requests when supply was a bit tight. And is this from butchers or restaurants or individuals? When you say your customer, can you sort of, who who was asking for, for what? Yeah, this was all our export customers. So wow. this was mainly coming from Japan and Korea. Okay. Um, and they they buy our beef by the container load, frozen and chilled, and and still do. You know, we've had um, a major Japanese customer we've had for ten years now, and and it's um, you know longevity is one of our our aims. Yeah. Um, and we you know building relationships. So when they came to us and said, look, we need more, and we said, well, we can't give you more of our product. Um, but, you know, it sowed the seed of, well, how can we help them out? So um, our beef sales marketing manager um, is a Brazilian fellow, Marcelo, and um, and he's a real entrepreneur himself. So he and I started a, a company called Pindora Foods where we had a, um, a clear idea that we wouldn't compete with MDH beef, but we would trade in other um other specs mm-hmm. so we would we'd say right well it, it can't be in direct competition with what we're doing so we started doing um, maybe 100 percent angus product or uh, mm-hmm. we were doing goats at one point oh, wow. um we've sold um different you know frozen rump caps into brazil and, and we've until covid we were selling beef from brazil into china Gosh. just playing around i guess in the market mm. um and and enjoying that and learning a little bit more about trading but but purely as a trading house and that's based basically on your reputation then so your your customers and are obviously yeah. very um keen to have your beef and if you can't supply it then they they trust you to to give them something as equally as good that's right, yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, coupled with um, Marcelo's contacts and he, he has an enormously um, long list of people that he's dealt with book. over his life and, yep, a very good black book <laughs> yeah. um, and the MDH reputation. And, and when we cooked up this idea, I spoke to the family and said, how would they feel about it? And, and you know, true to form, very supportive and said, yep, well, MDH will be a 50% shareholder in that and that gave it a lot of credibility. Wow. So. Um, we could just launch straight into that business. We've, we've actually not doing a lot at the minute, mm. um, mainly due to COVID restrictions, but uh, just you know, just keeping playing on the edge of the market. So I, I'm impressed with the ability, though, to, to really um, drive home the relationships and the importance of relationships in exporting because I think quite often we hear about, you know, the diplomacy or the government level about um, how good or bad or complicated things are, but... I think what is quite undervalued a lot of the time are those individual 
relationships. And even though it's a huge industry, they still seem to be very important and pivotal. Yeah, and it's really been key for us and and not just in our beef trading, but, you know, up and down our supply chain and, and throughout the business and throughout the years. You know, it's one of the things I suppose I continually heard in the family was, you know, it, it's all about relationships and and um, and maintaining those and nurturing them. And it certainly has helped us up and down, as I say, up and down the supply chain and certainly with our beef trading. So would that be, and, you know, I'm just hypothetically thinking though, is that scalable then? So I guess when you're doing really well and you, you've got these terrific markets, some people's instinct would be just to continually grow, but then do you do that at the sacrifice of some of those terrific relationships? We've, uh, I guess we've really concentrated on having a direct relationship. We don't have a lot of middlemen. We're a pretty lean operation. Um, our customers can all talk to anyone in the family. Um, we have a, a fairly, you know, direct path from export buyer or the importer in Japan, say, right back through to, you know, us living on the cattle stations. We, we host them at home. So none of you sleep ever then. It <laughs> just that sounds really <laughs> full on. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does sound full on, but of course, that's not happening every day. Yeah. Um, and and certainly not lately with no travel. <laughs> um, but I guess the relationships are, are better down so we, we can get away with that, mm. you know, in our business. Um, I think, but there's certainly other challenges. It, it's not all plain sailing. And, you know, we've got a, a foot in both camps. So what beef prices are doing and what cattle prices are doing in Australia, it's pretty hard to reconcile the beef side of things at the moment. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it's always something that I'm watching every every week and benchmarking and, you know, we've got to keep it lean to make it work. So, yeah, lots of challenges and lots of things to um, to keep me on a on the learning curve, I guess, Jane. And so what about your girls? Are they, are they poised to sort of take on any role in the, the business? Some of them are reaching university age at the moment. Yeah, I have uh, two at university and and um, very diverse interests, which is I healthy. just love. Yeah, healthy. Yes, um, our eldest daughter is studying in New Zealand to be a cellist. Wow! Um, oh, she's got a great story of her own. I think how did, Sorry, I just want to divert just quickly. How do you get that when you've grown up on a cattle station in Klongkari? I can't imagine that even she, her access to celloists wouldn't be. Um, no, it's, it's it's great. I mean, I totally, yeah, get where you're coming from. We were very lucky to have a, a fantastic strings of the air teacher throughout what? our girls' primary years on Mount Isa School of the Air. Yep. And they would have a group string lesson once a week um, with um, with their teacher at, at the Mount Isa base um, who had a terrific ear. And uh, and Bella sort of landed uh, her name's Bella clearly landed with uh, onto the cello um, a bit by default because she said to me I'd like to learn the violin so I rang the school and they said actually we need a cellist mm-hmm. um, so uh, yeah so you know they sent a cello out and sent and off cello. she went and um, <laughs> yeah not long afterwards that the teacher said look I think you might you know have something here and she moved to a Skype lesson with a teacher in Brisbane the year seven and then she went to boarding school and absolutely flourished so yeah so she got a scholarship she's studying over there and in third year now just gone back so still in isolation in Auckland at the minute yep 
No, that's incredible because it really when I went through distance ed, it was the recorder club with the microphone between your knees and that's about it. <laughs> so uh, I just find uh, that yeah. fascinating <laughs> and highly inspirational. That is a terrific story. Uh, it is a great story and, and we didn't get away scot-free. We had the recorder as well, oh, um, which I, uh, I labelled an outside instrument. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, for, for good reason. Yeah, exactly. I remember we left one of our apartments in Kenya once, and one of the um, one of the ladies next door gave our kids three recorders, and I was like, "You really hate us, don't you? This was never a good relationship." <laughs> um, and what about the other girls? Are they keen to to be involved? Uh, yes. So, um, and and I, I must just clarify that Bella, you know, absolutely loves home. And, oh, yeah. and everything about it as well, but she's choosing a different path. No, no that um, goes without saying. Yes, but good. Yeah. <laughs> um, our, <laughs> uh, our second um, eldest daughter, Katie, she is studying agribusiness yeah. um, through UQ and is in first year and, you know, has been really lucky to be home for the last number of months with the, with the COVID mm-hmm. um, episode. So she's still there actually and working and studying, um, but is coming back at the end of the month. Yep. Yeah. And with a very, very clear vision about she, how she wants to come in and um, and make her mark, and uh, no doubt she will. And then the next two are very, yeah, they're very keen as well. They work all holidays in with the stock camp, and very clean. They're all very keen, right? You know, equestrians. Um, That's another yeah, cheap hobby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, I just want to go back a couple of steps. Uh, Xander was involved with some groundbreaking concepts at the time um, of his accident, especially with trisulf and, and animal welfare, and that really continued on and has become quite a mainstay of the modern industry. That that was one of the mm. other things that you guys picked up and, and ran with? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it really is... Um, you know, such an important part of, of our industry. Um, so, yeah, you're right. Uh, he was doing some very early trials with um, Chick Olsen, um, who, you know, is a, is a terrifically forward-thinking guy as well, and they, um, yeah, came up with a plan for the beef industry 10 years ago. And some of the things that Dan says, I often go back and have a look at little clips or read what he, he said and, you know, truly crystal ball sort of moments. Uh, and you know, really excited to see that the uptake's growing, and um, and it's recognised as as standard animal husbandry now. And yeah, we've used it in our in our business, you know, the whole time. And um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great legacy, and and that's just one of the things that, that Zan did um, in the beef industry, which is still very relevant today. Absolutely. Now we are. Talking because of Beef Australia, we've got our you know, the main event, uh, Beef 21, next year. Uh, MGH has had a very long association with beef events. What's been your personal highlight? Oh, I just find the week is just, uh, it's so impressive on a social level. Um, there's the, the flow of information, the networking, the, the st- you know, that the stalls people hold, the, the ag tech. I just don't think I could name just one aspect, actually. <laughs> um, I love it. And I didn't get to go to, to them, you know, as often as I am now because I guess... Well, you had small um, children and you lived well, quite a ch- yeah. far away away, you know. It happens. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it wasn't as accessible. and um, But now, you know, I'm taking to 2021, Katie's coming for the week with me, which I'm really excited about. Um, I've had, you know, wonderful experiences. I was involved in the Graham Acton program last year as a mentor. 
um, which I, I got a lot out of and um, had a terrific mentor partner, Annabelle Butler, who's doing wonderful things. I was going to say, with just because obviously the Xander McDonald Award as well is quite a landmark um, mm. um, program for up-and-coming uh, rural people, mentoring is so important and I think it's becoming more and more of a um, – I don't want to say buzzword because that cheapens it because I think what I'm trying to say is that I think we should, we're should we starting to understand the relevance of it and how crucial it is to some of these more innovative roles in the beef industry. So how do you see mentoring overall in the beef industry? Should we be doing more of it? Oh, definitely. I think as much as we can. We have some fabulous minds and, and people and, you know, just such um, – um, you know, inspirational things happening right across the industry. And, and everyone that I've encountered and needed help from has been so willing to share and to help. Um, so, I, you know, and I guess that's part of the reason that um, I'm, you know, really happy to be involved in the Graham Acton program and, and you know, just love what we're doing with the Xander McDonald Award because it is all around mentoring. And my personal experience with mentoring has been second to none. You know, I've had some of the, the biggest heavyweights in our industry answer my call and give me the time I needed and, and you know, you thank them and they and they sort of blow you off. So it's, um, uh, you know, it, it is just, just such an important part of everybody's growth curve, I guess. Do you think it's just become people are thinking about it a bit more? I just feel like when um, I was a lot younger, people were – more hesitant to ask questions or you'd feel a bit stupid if you didn't know something. But I guess as our spheres of influence get bigger and is it just because we're getting older and it's okay to ask questions or is it the younger generation that just um, are better at asking questions and, and sort of that thirst for knowledge is coming through? Yeah, I think probably all of those things. I think that we, we encourage our kids to ask questions more. Um, it, uh, I certainly you know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't find it hard to ask in the beginning. Mm. Um, I, I kind of came, when Zan died, I, I really had this ridiculous notion that I should know a lot more than I did. Mm. Um, I felt because I, you know, we'd been married for, um, and, you know, 14 years or 14 and a half years and we'd, I'd lived up on Cape York and I'd done these great things and he was off doing fabulous things and then I thought oh my god I just feel like I really should know more um so I I kind of bluffed my way a little bit and realized that you know that was stupid and everyone could see see straight through me it is hard to ask for help initially but um you know we just don't get anywhere if we don't and then when you do the, the world opens up mm, I was about to say I think I, I've had many um moments like that where you just I really should know this and I really don't want to ask because I don't want you all to judge me but at the mm. same time as you say it just opens up another whole world oh, it really does and I think I think everyone's experience with that means that we encourage others to do the same and I think you know maybe you're right as we get older we realize we we haven't got to be the smartest person in the room and it's okay not to know and it's okay to ask and learn well, someone's always I got to ask the dumb question. I actually find myself doing that more and more, just in case. And I'm not. I'm, I'd say mm. it's just in case anyone else wants to know, but it's usually just me 
not oh nice. no, no there'd be so many people <laughs> sighing with relief around the room I can tell you. <laughs> now you split your time between Devoncourt and, and Brisbane now so mm-hmm. I imagine you spend some time in the urban supermarkets and the butchers I'm sure you don't have you know a cold room like you do at Devoncourt no, you could, no sadly I'm sure you don't. <laughs> I have a freezer <laughs> yeah. but I guess you have a really unique insight into to people's thoughts and buying trends around beef what are you seeing because Quite often we just hear what the media says that our consumers want. Well, you know, I guess we've all seen in the media and it is, I think, you know, my experiences in the last few months has certainly seen a shift to beef. Um, you know, it's it, people have gone back to what they know and what's safe and that's genuine. You know, I've been in the, in the shops and the beef aisles have been completely cleared out. So they trust uh, it. It's a trust thing too then. Yeah, yeah, it's safe. They trust it. They know it. People are happy to dabble in, in, you know, something grown in a lab or another exotic meat perhaps, but (laughs) they know what to do with beef. Yeah. Um, they know what to expect and um and Australian standards mean that it's it's always going to be a good a good meal. Um so I certainly have noticed that beef has just been popular. Um, you know, there's there's been talk that it's been more grinding beef and, and stewing beef and beef that people can freeze, and I would say that has been reflected um, certainly in people's buying patterns. We've had a great couple of months or a few months now with Super Butcher because people are getting back in the kitchen and possibly people are learning to cook that, that weren't cooking as much because they had such, you know, great access to fabulous restaurants that were serving meals and um and so, yeah, we, we certainly have seen a, a, a surge in, in cut that you would use in your, uh, in your kitchen. And do you think that'll stick, though? Like, you know, will it be just an easy thing once everything opens up again just to go back to old habits? Or do you people realise, do you think it's going to be a bit of a slower return because people understand they can cook? I think there'll be a number of factors. And I, I think that, yeah, there'll be, there will be a, um, a balance struck. But, you know, there's, you know, people are budgeting a little bit more and that means not eating out once a week if that was what was normal before mm. or if it was twice a week back to once. Um, P- a, B, you know, realising that they can make a, a, a tasty dish at home which is um, going to feed the family for less and, and also that it's fun to cook and it's fun to experiment with beef and there's, there's just so many different recipes across all the, the carcass and I think there's a lot of fun in that when you discover that, oh, my goodness, I can use a brisket to not just for corn meat, but, you know, I might I might roast it. I'm having that battle with my father at the moment. He just believes that all brisket should be corned until the you know, <laughs> end of the earth. But I've, I've, I'm getting him over with a few sticky, slow-cooked, you know, camp oven styles. <laughs> yeah, old habits do die hard. My <laughs> father-in-law um, shook his head as the rise of the beef cheek became oh. something and um <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't think that one's ever going to float so well in in his house <laughs> oh that's a pity um, what do you cook yeah. julie when you're you know going through the butcher or, or the supermarket what do you take home for your average um tuesday night meal we have a few favorites because the kids are, are definite carnivores so <laughs> we good girls we, Yes, yeah, they're all – no, there's no vegetarians in our house. Um, it, it is hard to go past a steak, there's no doubt. But I actually, when I'm in Brisbane, um, I don't have – I'm not around the house an awful lot. Well, traditionally I'm not – have been a little bit more um, with the restrictions. But I, I tend to use my slow cooker a lot mm. because I can put lunch on uh, – sorry, I can put dinner on at lunch 
and go out and do what I need to do and pick kids up from various sporting fields across Brisbane and be back and dinner's ready. So I do love that. Um, I love the flexibility that, um, you know, you can have with um, a top side, um, a knuckle, you know, particularly at home I go into the cold room and and pick my cut. Um, I love love to cut a rump and uh, and have a good piece of steak. Yep, so so rump's your steak of choice too then. Um, I'm going to say, yes, it is ribeye or rump, but then we love a rib as well. So look, I just think I'm, um, you know, across the carcass. I'm not sure there's a cut of meat. I I can't. You sound like you are (laughs) across the carcass. (laughs) I have to say when we're putting a killer away, I start going, okay, so that's that night and that's that night. And I get like (laughs) for choice and very overwhelmed. Now, Uh, um, and and let's not forget spaghetti bolognese is always on the menu. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Well, my kids are still little, so it definitely is. So um, they do like quite a range as well. Now, still sticking on the food side of things, MDH has supplied uh, a number of um, restaurant events at Beef Australia over the last few programs. What's that like when, you know, you've got such an amazingly diverse industry and top quality beef and MDH Mm. is on the table? Do you get a bit nervous? Uh, yes, um, I, I, I'm. Ex- I guess excited as well. I, I love that it's um, it brings people together, and we partner with, um, you know, a, a vineyard or, um, you know, I think very you know, terrific. Yes, it is. Yep. Uh, and, or you know, we have exciting chefs come and do the showcasing. Uh, we we get you know this really great mix of people together. Uh, I love it. I, I'm nervous is probably not the quite the right word excited and you know I, I do I do hope that the the cartons that were sent were the best ones but you know you don't have any control over that so yeah. um but yeah no it's it's just great to be part of, of beef Australia you know and we're you know we're very um very excited about the upcoming event as well and and yeah and just uh just thrilled to be involved on a few different levels I guess you're the wrong person to ask because you've got this long line of entrepreneurs in the McDonald family and such a um, an exciting business. But do you think there is um, more onus on on modern beef enterprises to be a bit more um, multi skilled in terms of having that face to face marketing kind of thing? Because I guess it's always been so easy just to send them on a ship or send them to the meatworks, but so many more people are taking that really active role in, in the end product. Uh, look, I don't think there's an onus on that uh, to be fully integrated like that. Mm. I actually think what our responsibility is is to be really good at and get better at what we do well. And if that means improving your fertility or your nutrition, which leads to fertility clearly, but, you know, if that if that means... Um, becoming more sustainable or or reducing our footprint whatever it is that that is going to improve your business model and make us a more sustainable um, industry I think our own responsibility lies more there than taking it through to the consumer you know we've got um, some terrific packers that do an excellent job for us and and sometimes you know they they we we don't need to step into that arena. Mm. Uh, I think if if you've got a particular product and a niche or the scale or there's something that drives you to do that, by all means, I think that's a really exciting space to go into. But I don't see that that's a responsibility. I think our responsibility lies with doing what we do better and potentially, you know, just getting 
getting more from what we have or more from less. And I think we're going to have to do that as we move forward, you know, for a number of reasons. Julie, that is an absolutely amazing way to sum that up. I think we've spoken uh, long enough today. We're running out of time, but is there anything else that you'd like to add at all? Oh, I don't think so, Jane. It's been lovely chatting with you. Um, yeah, no, and uh, yeah, just a, a big thank you to the broader industry who have um, who have certainly helped me in my journey. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Julie McDonald, and we'll see you at Beef 21. Thanks very much, Jane. See you there. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners. Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.